reason is this idea is kind of a universal ideal. Like when Descartes talks about everyone having equal access to reason, he doesn't mean like we're all born with the same mental capabilities. I think what he means is like in order to have democracy, we need this type of leap into universality. We have to at least imagine or believe that everyone has the ability to think and to reason, even if reality goes against that. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. Welcome everybody to episode five of Think Bigger, Think Better. I'm very grateful for the terrific reception and the kind remarks on the first episode. I hope you really enjoyed last week's episode on teaching philosophy to children, featuring Jana Moore alone. Next, after this episode, we'll have an episode on fake news, an episode on populism versus democracy, an episode on personal change from one of Europe's leading experts, and later on, in the spring, an episode on gluten, an episode on Bitcoin, and an episode on the Enlightenment. So keep coming, share liberally, please tell your friends, but most importantly, I've got a dozen books to give away. If you go to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes, you'll see how to write a review of the podcast. Drop me also an email so I know which review belongs to you, and hopefully I can give you one of the uh, many books uh, from our earliest guests that I'm giving away for people who help me out with a podcast rating. In this episode, we talk to Bob Samuels. An incredible polymath, a psychologist, a philosopher, and a social scientist from the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he teaches public discourse, psychology, and rhetoric. He holds degrees in psychology and English. He holds doctorates, I should say, in psychology and English, two of them. And he's the author of numerous books, including Psychoanalyzing the Left and Right After Donald Trump, and most recently, Educating Inequality, beyond the political myths of higher education and the job market. I was attracted to getting Bob on the show because he's a contrarian. He's picked intellectual fights with Sam Harris, with cognitive neuroscience Damasio, with Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler. He challenges orthodoxy in all he writes. He's an extraordinary broad and complex thinker, and in just 40 minutes, we get through neuroscience, Freud, emotion, reason, pseudoscience, education, capitalism, human rights, evolutionary biology, globalization and global governance, identity politics, and behavioral economics. Phew. So get ready for a wild ride. Some of the questions I ask are, why is reason important to people in democracy and how do you teach it to college students? What's the link between reason and emotion? How do you draw the line between pseudoscience, science, and scientism? Is psychoanalysis pseudoscience? How can human beings get past tribal reasoning to solve some of the world's biggest problems? And what role does identity politics play in creating a response to globalization? I find myself racing to keep up, so buckle up for the ride. Bob, welcome to the show. Great to have you. You're something of a paradigm buster and a, a cross-disciplinary thinker, and in all your writing, that I've studied in preparation for this, you criticize a lot of orthodox views. So I'm really looking forward to hearing, uh, you know, how 
you stack up and your criticism. critique. Many of these people are household name experts. Uh, your critique of Richard Thaler, who's just won a Nobel Prize. So that's a sort of uh, engagement I think my listeners will find super interesting. I've certainly enjoyed reading your work. So shall we jump on in? Uh, great. You talk a little bit about reason, or a lot about reason, as I do, as being important to our world and, and also how to teach it to college students and why it's important to teach it to college students and whether you can teach it to college students. So I suppose there's a big question here is how is reason different than other things we do with the mind? So one way I try to teach this to students is we uh, read uh, Descartes, his Discourse on Method, and we look at how Descartes tries to define being unbiased or neutral, being objective, trying to be empirical. And this idea is that these are kind of necessary but impossible ideals, things that we strive for, so that we're attempting, Descartes says, to remove all prejudice and self-interest and try to see the world as it is. And as difficult or impossible that that is, that is our goal. And so in order to do that, we have to reflect on our own biases. We have to try to base our arguments on evidence. And so reason is this combination of empirical evidence and logic and getting rid of your own individual bias. And so it leads towards a kind of uh, neutral or universal perspective. Which we could never attain, right? That, uh, that great book by Thomas Nagel is A View from Nowhere. He said there's no such thing. Right. But I think we've gone too far in the opposite direction. Because we cannot ever attain it fully, we kind of give up on it completely. And I think that in order for us to deal with uh, things like climate change, any of these huge problems that are facing us as a species, we have to understand that we need science, we need reason, we need logic. And there's all these things that are now challenging reason and logic. And some of them are coming from science itself. So one idea that I talk a lot about is this notion that a lot of the new brain sciences mm. On one level, they do appear to be empirical, but they constantly return to this idea that most of our decision-making and our mental processes are irrational, are emotional, are intuitive. They've been programmed through natural selection. They're based on old software. And then somehow we're trapped into this old way of thinking and that we can't actually escape this through reason or through education or through public policy, because we've internalized these inherited biological mechanisms that we're not even aware of. Well, they definitely say that we've inherited these evolutionary mechanisms that were adaptive responses, but do they say, so what are they making? Are they making a, a normative claim that any attempt to be reasonable, to be objective, to be neutral, to be universal, is a fantasy of just, well, I mean, they say it's a bad idea or they say we'd never get there or what do they say? What do people like Kahneman and people like that say about the attainment of reason or reason in society or so forth? What do, how do they conclude? Well, someone like Damasio is very important to him to say that like Descartes separated reason and emotion. And he wants to show that all of our reasoning is based on emotion. And I think like the neuroscientists tend to really misunderstood what reason is. They seem to only think about it as rational planning or conscious decision-making. Yes. And once again, reason is this idea. It's kind of a universal ideal. Like when Descartes talks about everyone having equal access to reason, 
he doesn't mean like we're all born with the same mental capabilities. I think what he means is like in order to have democracy, we need this type of leap into universality. We have to at least imagine or believe that everyone has the ability to think and to reason, even if reality goes against that. Part of this is an ideal. It's a necessary but impossible ideal. And I wonder like how brain scans are able to pick up like abstract and negative concepts like neutrality or reason or universality. So I think it doesn't show up in a lot of their research. And I think they dismiss in general these more social and universal qualities. Right. Well, I suppose most people would argue that some sort of reason, some sort of rationality, some sort of logic was important. But the question is, is can it be taught? Or as some people suspect, that any attempts to teach people to reason, particularly in the academy, which leans left, are attempts at some sort of indoctrination or some sort of attempt at scientism or or, or what's your view? Can First of all, can it be taught and, and, and should it be taught or when should it be taught? I think it's the most important thing to teach and I think we can teach it all the time. I think the scientific method, you know, these are principles. I, the problem is we don't teach them as ethical principles. We just teach it as a process. But when you think about this idea of having an open mind, of analyzing your own prejudices and trying to suspend them, of basing your ideas on evidence of using a method that's been approved of or used by other people. But the, these are all the traits of the scientific method sure. since the modern period. And I think we can teach them. I think that what I distinguish science from scientism, so science is really the process of discovery. You're learning something new. You you're, have an open mind and you're looking at evidence and you're using a shared methodology to discover and communicate that evidence. Scientism is that we already know. We believe we already know things. We already know how the world works. And a lot of evolutionary psychology and neuroscience and even behavioral economics, there is this kind of attitude that everything is already known and that it's not necessarily a discourse of discovery. And so I think Freud said something very interesting. He said to be a scientist, it means giving up on the idea that we know. And in Descartes, we have this idea of everything begins with doubt. We have to doubt what we're sure. already certain of, and we have to be open to discovery. And a lot of science is taught in school, unfortunately, as already memorized facts, or as already established ideas and beliefs. And so I think what we need to teach is the practice of discovery, and not just having student, testing students on their ability to memorize already established ideas. Sure. So there's a lot said today about, first of all, the fact that I think there's an extraordinary number. There are only 55% of Americans know that the earth revolves around the sun rather than the other way around. There's a great quiz that students can take, which is 10 questions long. Do antibiotics cure both bacterial and viral infections? You know, it's not a fairly, you know, seventh grade science kind of stuff. And, and most Americans score below 50% on these. So it... That's one, of course, approach to teaching science. It's the one that I had a lot of 13 years of science education. And mostly it was learning scientific models, scientific facts, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't really learn about the scientific method until 20 years later when I began to study philosophy. So are you saying that scientism is that former approach? It's the teaching of science as a corpus of 
it's not fixed. Nobody thinks it's fixed, but as a corpus of facts rather than a method, an ethical approach to knowledge. Is that your yeah. definition of scientism? I think that's a big part of it. And often the assumption that, you know, we know everything already and that there might be a few little things to discover, but generally that we're starting from a position of like the all-knowing scientist. And so, you know, there's studies that show that if you just show a brain scan in a study of something, that yep. people will believe in it. And so there is still this investment in science, but people don't really understand how science works or what science is. And part of the reason is our education system is really focused on grading and socially sorting people. So the emphasis on in our education system starting in like kindergarten is really how to evaluate people, grade people, rank people, rate people in order to sort them for college or graduate school or jobs or society. And so that grading and that evaluating mentality is based on testing people for what they already know. Of course. For what's already been established. So it's yeah. not based on creativity or discovery or even truth. It's based on the need to have people to socially conform to a pre-established set of knowledge and information. It's very interesting. I mean, even if you take the next step and you teach people the scientific method and you teach people experiment and evidence and all of those sorts of things, even if you could do that and they can abstractly tell you what the steps of the scientific method are, does that mean they use it in their lives? So are they applying that when they're in the grocery store or when they're evaluating a political claim about climate science or anything like that? Can we teach science in such a way that it's not these abstract ideas that are only used by people in white coats, but it's actually something that we in our daily lives. I mean, I, I was sent an anti-vaccination paper by my ex-wife, as a matter of fact, who said, oh, look at this, you know, vaccination is a bad idea. And this is a research paper. And I had to read the paper for 20 minutes and really look quite hard at it to see that it was actually a pile of nonsense, that it was a terrible research method. It was horrible sampling. It was, you know, flawed in, in numerous ways. But she's not trained in science, and, and, and I would say 99.99% of the public, unless they were trained in, you know. Yeah, two responses. One is, so something I really try to teach my students, you know, this phrase, you know, you're all entitled to your opinions, but not your facts, and trying to distinguish between facts and opinions. And, and part of it is this process that you get from reading like Descartes is he's constantly, it's like a autobiography, he's constantly questioning himself. And, and this ability of being self-reflective mm -hmm. and self-critical is essential. And it has to be taught, I think, at an early age. And also, um, like we're starting to talk about as emotional intelligence. We don't really teach people enough about their own mental processes or what emotions are or the role of emotions. And so part of having a discourse of reason is trying to understand what unreason is and where it comes from and how we can deal with it. And once again, I think that can be taught on all levels of education. So one thing that I try to teach is when I teach, I also teach humanities courses, and I'm teaching a course where we're going over Hamlet. And I'm trying to show to the students that you can apply the scientific method to a literary text. If you take these major ideals into account, you have to have an open mind, you have to have evidence, you have to break things down into parts, and you have to be as comprehensive as possible. And so you can teach like the scientific method in many different disciplines. And the problem is we just kind of isolate it and we don't even really teach it. And we don't see it as like an ethical or moral 
discourse. And because of that, then people you say you have to rely on other discourses to have ethics and morality. Yes. Well, let's move on to the next question. But I was struck by this conversation with my ex-wife about how on earth is a non-scientist supposed to parse through scientific knowledge? How could are, Is it an unreasonable expectation that someone would be able to read a research paper on vaccination and tell the difference between a good one and a bad one. And I, I think it's a really thorny problem. But um, do you want to turn to Freud and Lacan? Because I know uh, I know I want to get into some of your views on, on uh, psychoanalysis. Um, uh, yeah, that'd be great. I come from a school, a lot of people I read think the psychoanalysis is, is pseudoscience, that the concepts are, are made up and they're, you can't operationalize them, you can't measure them. One quote, I may be paraphrasing, Freud managed to project his entire neurotic personality onto our culture. So... <laughs> In, in what ways do you characterize it as science or in what ways does it augment more physical science approaches and in what ways in any, does it fall short as a science in your view? Well, I think the practice itself, once again, ideally, even though it's rarely practiced that way, Freud introduced two key concepts. One is the idea of the neutrality of the analyst, mm -hmm. which is very similar to the idea of the neutrality of the scientist. So once again, the idea is an effort not to base your perception on your own biases, your own self-interest, or your own cultural background. To have an open mind, to be neutral, and in case of psychoanalysis, not to judge the patient for what the patient says. The flip side of that is what's free association. Once again, this discovery of truth through radical self-honesty, of discovering your own biases, your own ways that you lie to yourself, but this idea of being able to speak without fear of censorship or without the need of trying to impress the other person, in this case, the analyst. And so I think the foundations of the analytic practice that Freud stumbled upon are highly scientific. They're the essence of the modern scientific method. They're neutrality and free association. They require critical introspection, and that it's not based on a pre-established set of prejudices. The problem is a lot of the theory and a lot of the application is often highly contentious and you can poke a lot of holes in it. But I think when we talk about science, it's funny, they say Freud is not scientific. I think Freud actually created a discourse of science by basing the practice on neutrality and free association. Now, there's always deviations from that, and there's problems with that, but fundamentally, the analyst, and this is very hard for people to understand, the analyst is not there to understand the patient or provide lessons to the patient or judge the patient. And it's that suspension of that normal relationship which makes analysis work. The problem is too many like therapists now and like post-Freudian analysts, they can't get away from the idea that they're supposed to be providing the meaning to their patients, and that undermines, I think, the whole process. So in one respect, it's hard to disagree with what you said, is that Freud tried to capture the spirit of open-mindedness and curious investigation and inquiry. But if I were to push back or play devil's advocate, is not the definition or part of the definition of science is that you're able to make, generate from your open-mindedness, from your experience of the world, predictive models, which can then be verified and tested by numerous people in order to establish some kind of external validity. 
surely psychoanalysis doesn't get that far in a sense as a science, does it? I think the problem is people are not looking at the right thing. I think if we wanted to do a, uh, a study that could be repeatable in a scientific way, we could show that if an analyst suspends their judgment, the patient will talk about things they haven't talked about before. I think we could show that empirically. I think that we're, people are trying to test the wrong things. They're trying to test some of the you know, more speculative ideas that Freud had. And they're doing anything they can to be dismissive of it. Because the other side of what I've been writing about is part of the dismissal of psychoanalysis has resulted in this idea that there should be like a medication for every social or personal problem. And it's clear if you look at the development of the standard diagnostic manual in the United States that they purposely got rid of psychoanalysis so that they would have a biological medical model so that they could support the pharmaceutical industry and the psychiatric industry. And so psychoanalysis still, I think, offers an alternative and a challenge to the biomedical model that is continuing to spread. And also all these new brain sciences like neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, and even behavioral economics to a point support the biomedical model. And I think that that leads to this idea that we're constantly medicating all different types of people and that we have a huge problem with over-medicalization. Well, there's no question. And there's also been some great critical stuff written over the course of the last 50 or so years, which is all of this medicalization is to, in a sense, the for uh, the opiate of the masses, instead of religion being the opiate of the masses, we actually give the masses opiates today right. in order to suppress dissent. And in some sense, you know, the systemic problems of mental illness in our culture can well be a perfectly understandable and normal approach to a culture and a society and political and economic processes that are at base oppressive. I mean, that would be sort of a Marxist view. Uh, and, and I know that a little bit of reading is that you have some sympathy with some Marxian ideas on things. That's accurate too, that some of the political, some of the ideologies you read in ostensibly objective psychological and neuroscientific and evolutionary psychological literature, you think have a political agenda that's sometimes not too well hidden. Do you want to say something about that? Well, my argument is really like a lot of these professors are liberal professors doing science, but the kind of result of what they write about is anti-liberal and anti-university. And so it's, I don't think it's intentional at all. I think that because of their investment in biological determinism, they can't help but present an ultimately conservative model and an anti-liberal model that goes against, like if you read The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker, he spends like the first half of his book just attacking the social sciences, progressive politics, and liberal discourse. And I think there's a few different reasons. One is, from a scientific perspective, all of these discourses are not scientific, like psychoanalysis, and so therefore they should be dismissed. And so by being a scientist, you can say that the social sciences and the humanities are just speculative guesswork, and therefore they sh they're not valuable, and they shouldn't receive funding or tenured positions or grants or respect. So part of the discourse of the new brain sciences is kind of a direct attack on other discourses, on the social sciences, what have you. But also there is this conservative idea of like we're, our decisions today are based on old software developed during the hunter-gatherer period 
that kind of biological determinism, I think, really re misrepresents Darwin's theory. And in that way, I see it has a political agenda, even if it's an unintentional political agenda, which basically is just naturalizing the social status quo to basically say the way we act today is because of nature, yeah. is because of intuition or biology. Yeah, there's an interesting, so your view is interesting. So these so-called liberal academics, what in a sense they're doing is providing a pseudo-scientific or pseudo-scientific justification for a point of view which has man as competitive by nature, which is obviously a justification for the capitalist system, whereas capitalist system in, in the orthodox view arise because competition is not only natural between human beings, but it's beneficial between human beings. And the opposite view, uh, Marx said this best, is actually what dignifies human beings is our ability to collaborate. And so all of this time that we spent defining ourselves as competitive human beings striving for survival in a sort of Hobbesian world is actually a construction of the capitalist system. He would, Marx would say that the capitalist system is what makes us compete with one another and seek to destroy and dominate one another rather than our biological nature. Is that a view that you're sympathetic to? Yeah, totally. And if you think about it, like, so the liberal version of today is called the meritocracy, yeah. which is basically people are rewarded for their talent or education. And the conservative flip side of that is social Darwinism, that yeah. like basically people have these inherited strengths, you know, like IQ that allow them to be successful in society. But meritocracy and social Darwinism are really just two sides of the same coin. Sure. And, and so that's how I see this kind of liberal conservative ideologies as actually enforcing each other. We think of them as opposite and polar opposites. But on some level, what we're seeing in contemporary culture is that the kind of the logic or the ideology of the liberal class is mirroring the ideology of the conservative class. And so they're mutually reinforcing. So even these kind of liberal scientists or liberal universities end up being structured by highly kind of conservative ideologies. And as extreme forms, what you call biological determinism is something like you might read in the bell curve or some of these, you know, far right intellectuals, I don't I use the word, there's not that many intellectuals on the far right, but that view that our biology determines, in a sense, our capability in life, and that is a justification for inequality in society, it's a justification for uh, many of the ills we see around us are, are sort of, it's a, an ill-expressed, I mean, we don't say those people are poor because they're genetically maladapted, but our behaviors and our policies, particularly in the right, would suggest that that's in fact our view, that they're there due to some fault of their own nature rather than being born in the wrong part of a structure and an economic and political structure. And I, I want to add, though, so I think it's actually much more of a bigger problem. So the easy one to attack or criticize is like the genetic inheritance of IQ. Sure. But the fundamental underlying assumptions of so much of the brain sciences, of neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, and even behavioral economics is this biological determinism that allows for them to move from genes to neurons to brain regions yeah. to mental functions. Sure. And even if they have some theory of neuroplasticity or epigenesis, sure. the idea like these inherited programs can be transformed through sure. experience, that neuroplasticity is so limited yeah. in relationship to these inherited mental programs 
that you, they never fully escape their biological determinism. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that's the orthodox view. I would say that's the orthodox view. So it's interesting. So I'm an optimist. I mean, you know, ideally the, the project is to understand the mind. And if the locus of the mind is predominantly the brain and the brain is a biological organism, then we want to make the link between our mind, our behavior, thoughts and feelings between the brain at biology, which gets down to chemistry and neuroanatomy and understanding the structures. And so that's a lot of the project in neuroscience. I don't see that that project is necessarily doomed to failure. I just think we're several hundred years too early. I think there's far too much complexity for us to be able to reduce complex phenomena like the mind and consciousness into something that's biological as atoms and neurotransmitters and, and neuroanatomical structures and neurophysiology. But your view is that that project will never succeed, I guess, listening to you. You think that's biological determinism. So my view that that might happen in 200 years is, is you'd say, suspicious or false or, or misguided. Well, let me say my, my main concern is that I think that most of our problems that we're facing are global in nature and that we need to have, eventually, I think what we're moving towards is some type of like universal human rights. Sure. But it, and we have to deal with climate change, which is a global phenomenon. Sure. So I believe that our only solution, and this is very controversial, is a global government. And I think that we need a universal human rights. And in order to have those things, those things are, once again, they're artificial constructions. I don't think they're not part of biology. They're not part of evolution. It's a break with evolution. It's a break with biology. We need to construct social institutions that go against a lot of our biology or intuition sure, or yeah. our inheritance. And so we have to really think about what kind of world can we construct to deal with the problems that we have. And I think that requires an investment in universality. I mean, one example I give is I used to be a union president, and I would have to defend a lot of people I really didn't like. And I had to insist on due process. And so if you think of like due process as like universal human rights, you have to suspend what you think about other people. You have to kind of leap into universality. And I think that's what we need to do. And I don't see how universality shows up on a brain scan or is going to be related to evolutionary psychology. And so I think that we need a totally different way of thinking about how we organize society and how we think about that organization. I think I'm a great optimist about these larger structures, global government and the European Union. And I think the European Union is one of the great experiments of the 20th century is how could 28 different countries collaborate and maintain enough respect for individual differences, local customs, local economic needs, and everything like that, but still work together where it's important to work together. But, you know, if you think about it, it's a very new experiment. The United States is only 230. The Constitution, I think, is 230 years old. Germany wasn't a country until – I think Germany wasn't unified until 1888 or something like that, somewhere like that. I mean, these bigger structures that we have – as countries aren't often very old. China's very old, so China's certainly an exception to that rule. But uh, I heard it very well put that we have a global economy and uh, we have a global ecology and environment and we have global information flows, but we still think in small units and small tribes. We're still exactly. very tribal in the way we think about things. And so what you say about creating structures which allow us to overcome, you didn't say this exactly, I'll put it in my own words, overcome that tribalism and be able to look at bigger picture issues like 
global trade, like global inequality, like global climate change, like preservation of the biosphere and biodiversity. All of those kind of problems require a global mindset, and we need structures to get us past our tribalism, in a sense, so we can begin to think that way. I would say we were winning the war until the 1970s or 1980s, but we've had this dramatic backlash uh, against... Well, I want to say something about the backlash, and I think, like, you know, Trump and Brexit and what's going on throughout the world, Russia, this kind of return to an anti-democratic, authoritarian, some type of fascism, you might say, is really the kind of last gasp I see of nationalism. It's kind of the last defense against globalization. And the problem is the left has not come up with a theory of globalization. No. And so the left has been as reactionary as the right. And so I think it's what's missing on the left and what's opened up the door for a lot of right-wing populists is that the left doesn't have any real global plan and understanding. And they're still locked in to a lot of the old ideology of the nation state. And so it's, it's also a failure of the left. And, and what we're seeing, I think, on campuses a lot and, you know, is a lot of students are highly now invested in, I think, a destructive form of identity politics. And, and, and that is in part because they don't see any other alternative or solution. And so people are retreating back into their particular groups because they don't see any path for common humanity. Well, one thing we've done terribly is that globalization has picked winners and losers, as all economic policies do. And, uh, we've been very bad at taking care of the losers. Uh, that's exacerbated what was already a class divide. You know, it's not something we talk about very much in America. We don't talk about class quite as much as we do in Europe. And uh, it's kind of, and when you do talk about class, you're accused of class warfare. But one of the things, as I see with identity politics, is often the talk about identity politics is a proxy for something we can't talk about, which is class. Definitely. And so I think that a poor black family has more in, in common with a very poor white family from a mining community in West Virginia. They have more in common than does a black and a black family who works on Wall Street and a white family who also works on Wall Street. I think the classes have more in common and more, if you want, solidarity and shared destiny and shared interests than do the races. But yet we still fall back on talking about race when I think the important issue really is class. But that's Well, see, the powerful people, like if you think of the, the long strategy of the Republican Party in the United States since 1980, has been to fight a cultural war instead of a class war. So whenever you have conflicts between groups in a class, like racial conflict, sexual conflict, that helps hide the class aspect and the class warfare. And so it's been a successful strategy. And I'm not saying like, I think identity politics has an important role in the sense like, you know, like gay rights and human rights have to be constantly sure. challenged and expanded. Absolutely. But the problem is if you get fixated on that level, there's no way of moving forward because then it's each group against each group. Yes. Yes. And that's something that the right have been absolutely masterful at is pitting is somehow align, aligning themselves with the interests of the, uh, the working class, portraying themselves as the saviors of the working class, and pitting members of the working class along racial lines often against one another, poor white families and poor black families. And so I, I, they've been enormously successful. And uh, it's to our enormous discredit, those of us think of ourselves as progressives or liberals, that we've allowed this to happen. And it's, I don't think we've come up with, as you say, in your writing, as you said on this call, I don't, I don't think we've come up on the left with a better answer at all. 
And whenever I talk about like global politics, the need for global politics, people just freak out yeah. because it's gotten, they just see it as a form of totalitarianism. And online, if you look up like global government, global politics, sure. it's almost all conspiracy theories. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting is people see national politics as a press of an authoritarian. Like in the United States, I mean, there are pockets of people, and I'm not talking small numbers of people, who see the uh, U.S. government, the federal system, as authoritarian or oppressive in design. And even when I was in Texas, you know, I'm from the north uh, northeast of America or from Europe, uh, something like that. So I kind of see Texas as a, as a huge monolithic thing. And I went to Texas. I was playing in a poker tournament in Texas, and they asked me if I'd ever been to Texas before. I said, yes, I've been to Dallas and Oxton. And they said, I won't use a Texas accent because it sounds disgraceful when I do. They said, Dallas and Austin aren't really Texas. And so for them, the two sort of economic governing centers of Texas, Dallas and Austin, were New York South. And so it's, again, just another example of a tribal mentality is even a, a unit which looks to me like it's monolithic. Texas is, in fact, a very fractured cultural entity. And Austin doesn't see the world the way the rest of Texas does. And a lot of Texans resent the fact that Dallas and Austin don't see the world the way Texans ought to see the world. <laughs> if you right. permit that. That's one of the great things about the poker game that we see you, well, it's a great thing and an annoying thing, depending if you've got, you're in the mood to engage with it, is we meet, of course, people from all over the United States, from all sorts of occupations and all sorts of geographies and all sorts of political ideologies. So if you talk to people, I meet people at the poker table that I would never meet in the halls of a university or in a mahogany boardroom on Wall Street, you know, get to hear what they think about the world. I don't know to what extent you uh, you engage with people uh, at the poker table from, you know, diverse. Now, I'm always surprised or interested in how incredibly, like, globally diverse it is that, um, well, I play a lot in Los Angeles or Vegas, two places I play, and you have people from all over the world. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. It's mostly all men, but they're from all over the world. And you, you'll be at a table and everyone will be from a different culture and speak a different language as their first language. And it is amazing. It is great. And, and it's one thing like I have, which I think I'm still trying to figure out, but generally I'm critical of the idea of blaming everything on capitalism because there are some positive aspects of capitalism. Absolutely, like yeah. you could think of like this diversity at the table of all trying to win money as kind of an aspect of, of capitalism. And the problem, which I think we have with capitalism now, I think is fixable, right? If we had a global government, we could have a global tax system. And the problem is that people right now can just move around their capital and their finances, and we have no way of regulating it. So we could actually have, what I talk about in this book I'm now writing, I talk about a, uh, a real global guaranteed income and how that's gonna be necessary because not only as a way we can collect taxes through global wealth tax if we had a global government, but the fact like because of automation and what's going on, we are seeing such a high level of job displacement and insecurity within the global economy that I think the only solution is something like a guaranteed basic income for everyone. And I think that could only be controlled and supported by a, some type of global governance. That's almost uh, another podcast by itself is UBI. It's a uh, very intriguing idea. And listen, let's wrap it up. I want to tell my listeners, actually, that you and I met at the poker table. It was a fascinating thing in Las Vegas during the World Series of Poker. I was at one end of the table. Bob was at another. Uh, we were playing some huge tournament, and uh, I, I was reading a book, and Bob 
began to make fun of me. And uh, he said, what are you reading? I said, some obscure philosophy book. And he said, oh, I'm a philosopher. And so we got to chatting and that's how this happened. But um, Bob, before we go, why don't you tell listeners, well, first of all, I'm going to make a pitch for them. There are very few people that make the link between neuroscience and evolutionary psychology and Freudian psychology and some of the sort of micro-level human phenomena and gross macro political and economic and cultural phenomena. And so I want to introduce you to my readers as saying, Bob, you're one of the guys that does that. Where where can listeners find out more about you? Which books, two or three of books, I know you've written 11 books, but which books would you recommend to listeners? Well, um, I have a book that just came out called uh, Educating Inequality. And it's really about the different myths we tell ourselves as Americans about education and inequality. And there's a section on the neuroscience and the new brain sciences and how that relates. And then um, I am finishing a book that's going to be out soon on, it's called The Politics of the New Brain Sciences. And um, I wrote a book that came out last year on uh, psychoanalyzing the left and the right after Donald Trump. So it's basically um, a book on psychoanalysis interpretation of current politics. Well, that's a lot. Of, there's a lot of that done on cable news at the moment. There's a lot of people yeah. become armchair psychoanalysts uh, diagnosing yeah. all sorts of mental disorders with the, our current president. They're neither qualified to do so, I don't think, and even if they were qualified to do so without uh, an extensive, uh, I think, three or four hour structured interview with a fellow, much as we'd like to believe we know what's going on over there. Anyway, I hope that uh, I wish you the best of luck with all your projects. Best of luck at the poker table, where I hope to see you before too long and everything like that. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, a, thanks, a, thanks lot. a lot for being on the show. In this part of the show, I get to talk about awesome books, movies, and other podcasts. And this week, it's two amazing short books by Today's Leading Thinkers. These books are essay length. That means you can probably read them in an hour. But they're so topical. They are by philosopher Harry Frankfurt, who is nearly 90 and an emeritus Princeton philosopher. He has two books for non-philosophers, and they've been featured on Jon Stewart's Daily Show. One is called, topically, On Bullshit, which is a serious philosophical treatment, well, somewhat tongue-in-cheek philosophical treatment, of something that we seem to be drowning in today. The second book is On Truth which suggests that as a society, we've lost our appreciation for truth and what we might do. Both, as you can imagine, are of immense importance in these difficult political times. Both are really very brief and cracking reads. So there are links on my podcast page, on my website to both of these books. I hope you enjoy them very much. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, 
head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.